did have an epiphany. Maybe not an epiphany, maybe epiphany is the wrong word. Um, you know how you last week were trying to convince me that um, a Google Murray Bookchin is a meme? Okay. <laughs> I came up with my own version. Okay. It is Google Charles Doubting. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've realized that I've said that like five times to different to people <laughs> recently. I'm like, oh wow, have you heard about this guy Charles Doubting? You should look him up, look him up on YouTube, dude. He's a good gardener, dude. Um, so that's my response. Google no dig. Google no dig. <laughs> no dig sounds funny. In America, we call it no till. I think no dig is a lot more like, uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. I'm not really tilling in my garden. Well, I mean, exactly. Digging. Yeah, I mean, it's an in, uh, t- I, I think of tilling as being an industrial process. Yeah. Yeah, well, sure. You're just digging your garden. Just digging in me garden. <laughs> he digs it, folks. <laughs> he digs it. Well, he doesn't. He, folks. Dig, he digs no dig. <laughs> um. Oh. How's your how's your garden doing, Dan? Any updates? How's the spreadsheet going? I haven't consulted the spreadsheet. <laughs> it's been too long. I need to run back to my spreadsheet. I know. I've got some data I need to input in my spreadsheet as well. Hmm. I'm running a little late. We have um, all of the vegetables that we planted in December that I thought were like <laughs> might result in some kind of winter crop. Obviously, we planted uh. them very late. Planted things on the 1st of December and hoping that they might do something over winter as a bit of a, <laughs> bit of a stretch. Obviously, they did grow. They sort of like, they all germinated for the most part sure. and grew. So we've gradually transplanted them all to our raised bed. Oh, really? Um, mm. So now we have some lamb's lettuce and some mm. pak choy. Oh, cool. And we also moved some spring onions. I don't know how the spring onions fared in being transplanted. I don't know whether mm. any of them fared well in being transplanted. Particularly, they were all quite small. Mm. Um, we had them in a bed outdoors, but under glass. Mm. And then we've since sown lots of new things in that bed. Oh, hoping that that might function as our, <laughs> I don't know, place to germinate seeds. <laughs> I mean, it's not necessarily warm enough, but we don't have a greenhouse and we don't have a lot of windows, window mm. space inside. So. Mm. Well, what are you going to do? Mm. I've uh, just, as I was telling you right before this, multi-sown leeks, which I'm excited to see how that goes. Uh-huh. So I put three seeds in each little kind of pod. Um, we'll see. Uh, Charles Dowding uh-huh. has assured me Who? that it's actually, yeah, Google him. <laughs> <laughs> um, assured me that's the way to do it. Okay. So we'll see. I did that, did some cabbage, um, not multi-sown, and... That's about that. My potatoes are still just kind of sitting there. Mm. Um, and yeah. I had um, steamed leeks. Ooh, steamed leeks. Interesting. Steamed leeks and they get very gooey inside. It's almost like mashed potato. In the Is middle. it good? Delicious. Oh, wow. Yeah, cool. Yeah, a revelation. How'd you do it? Did you just like cut them in half and then like... I, um, they, we cut them down to like mm. six inches in length kind of thing mm. and... Steamed them as a steamed them as a Ooh. steamed leak tube. <laughs> Some sort of steamed leak. Sounds like a Simpsons joke. <laughs> I wouldn't know what you were talking about. <laughs> um, um, so I'll, yeah, that's my recommendation. Steam leaks. Steamed leaks, folks. And uh, roasted cauliflower leaves. Ooh, leaves. Mm. Cauliflower leaves. Mm. A long time ago, mm. I believe you served me. I did. Leaves. I mean, I wasn't. I, it was. It was not my doing. <laughs> sure. But I, I you were was, present. I was present. <laughs> yeah. I was present at the service. I was the... addicted to those. Those were so good. I was like, what are these? These mm. are leaves? <laughs> <laughs> they were so good. Um, anyway. Yeah. Culinary. Um, culinary tips, folks. Mm. The podcast preferred uh, method of cooking leeks. Steamed. <laughs> the podcast preferred method of metabolizing the bounties of nature. 
eating. Eating, yes, indeed. <laughs> Actually, if you steam your legs long enough, you can inject them. But you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dried and crushed. <laughs> dried legs. Very exciting. Um, garlic's in the ground. Onions are in the ground. Realize that I made my beds, my no-dig beds, Dan. I don't know if I'm telling you. I don't know if I've told you that I'm actually doing no-dig. Um, too small, too thin. So I've had to, like, like uh, shore them up a bit. And I just realized, like, why don't I make these so thin? I should be... I think I was trying to save compost yeah, yeah, and, like, trying to make a little bit go a long way. Yeah. But um, very exciting. There's one garlic clove that I'm imagining it's a crow. Could be a magpie of some sort. Um, I'm on Team Magpie, though, so I'm hoping it's a crow. Has just been taking it out, this one clove, and then not <laughs> eating it and just setting it by the hole. And it's happened three times at my allotment. And I'm like, just, just uh-huh. leave this clove be. <laughs> you sure yeah. it's not like a, labor, uh, a neighboring allotment home? <laughs> it could be. Yeah. So the guy who hassled it's me about like, no digs. Yeah, you're being... Um... It's a prank. Oh dear. <laughs> my enemy. My allotment enemy. No dig soil actually rejects. <laughs> yeah. It spits it out. Yeah. He's like, you idiot. Um But yes, that's about that. Spring is on its way, and so I'm very excited to uh yeah, just get all of the spring vegetables in. Very exciting. Um I realized that all of the strawberry plants that I thought were weeds that I pulled out. I thought some of them were going to survive. They did not. So I will have no strawberries. You I'm pulled not... them out thinking they were weeds, realized yeah. there were strawberry plants, planted them again. <laughs> well, I just left one. I didn't realize, but it, oh, I, I think see. I just ripped out the root or something like that. I don't know. Disaster. So no strawberries for me. Uh-huh. Um, I'm fine with that, though. Honestly, what are you going to do? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's about it. That's my update for the week. Weather and allotment. Yeah. Um, all good, folks. It's been raining. It has been raining again. Mm. You're right. Yes. Hmm. Mm. What did we say was our preferred form of precipitation? Snow? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think yeah. not preferred was sleet. I think we covered that. Yeah, snow, rain, sleet. Snow, rain, sleet. Yeah. All right. I, I sure. mean, like, yeah. <laughs> Let's know. Bonus episodes. <laughs> we'll rank them. We'll rank them. Let's, let us, fill us in on what options there are. <laughs> yeah. Where will hail land? <laughs> did I you, re- about did you notice the other day it was like warm in the morning for like two hours? And then it got really windy, then it got really cold, and it hailed for 30 minutes, and then it cleared up again. I was just like, what am I supposed oh, to do with this? I missed, I missed that. Yeah, it's no good. Yeah. It's no good at all, folks. Don't go outside. <laughs> um, well, Dan, uh, long-awaited uh, reading on Metabolic Rift. And by long-awaited, I mean we talked That's about right. it last episode. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are. We're back firmly in the um, bosom of uh capital m marxism we enjoyed our foray into anarchism for last week mm-hmm. that was a blast mm-hmm. a little too much a little too much oh yeah uh-oh a little too much I had to run back to where it was safe <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> um if at least 50 percent of what we read isn't just block quotes of marx then you know no good <laughs> um but this week dan we are reading a collection of essays i don't really remember what they're called i suppose i could look but by john bellamy foster among others and friends. And friends. Um, <laughs> all about Metabolic Rift. Um, I suppose I should look up the longer one, what the actual name of that was. It was Marx's Theory of Metabolic Rift. <laughs> Classical Foundations for Environmental Sociology by John Bellamy Foster. And it was in um, the American Journal of Sociology, I want to say, something like that. Uh, just look it up. I don't know. We'll have it in the description. Um but yeah, we've literally never done that. Oh no, we put the name. In. We put <laughs> yeah, the name. We put, in, the we name. Don't put a link. Okay, we, we <laughs> I was like, have names. we not done that? We do put the name. It's true. It's true. Um, yeah, metabolic rift. I don't think anybody's ever read those. Yeah, well, 
If they had, they'd be very offended. <laughs> be like, wow, these guys are a lot stupider than we thought. Um, before we get into it, let's it's just say how funny trick. it was. It is a trick. How funny it was. Uh, today, Dan and I saw a comment on one of our videos. Live as the Ellen Meeksons would, Origin of Capitalism, for someone who was saying, like, this will help me out a lot with my thesis. <laughs> Dan and I were both just like, oh, your thesis, <laughs> you might fail. But you didn't hear that from us if you're relying on us. Um, but thank uh, you. We, 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 we are very happy to be your <laughs> supplementary material. Your auxiliary material. Auxiliary material, <laughs> indeed. But um, yeah. that person was consulting the primary sources. Absolutely. So, this is more of just like a, you know, ease into it kind of thing. Like yeah. a... Yeah, it was very cool. Yeah. Um, lay of the land. Lay of the land. Get your bearings. Exactly. Indeed. Feel a bit more familiar and safe. If I see uh, auxiliary statements uh, cited, <laughs> pieces, <laughs> I might I might have to end it. I don't know. That would be too much. Uh-huh, uh-huh, That'd be classic, uh-huh. though. But yes, to you, yeah, good please luck. Please don't do that. Please don't do that, but good luck on mm-hmm. your thesis. Um, where were we? Metabolic Rift. Very exciting. So yeah, two essays. One of them was just in a... The other one was much shorter. It was just in a book believe called the Marx handbook which is just a collection of a lot of very short um introductory essays by a bunch of different people on various topics and this one was by brett clark john bellamy foster and stefano bilongo um as an introduction to metabolic rifts and the ecological crisis this paired very well i would say with uh, our anarchist reading with um murray bookchin because a lot of what he was talking about about monoculture and about um hierarchy and about how that uh, relates to our production. Um, this was a little bit more of like a, well, sociological, I will say, reading of the whole thing. And I found it very enlightening, I will yeah. say. Sociological. Mm. Historical. Historical. I mean, the important piece of the overlap is the way that Bellamy Foster presents um, Marx as being, uh, Marx and Engels, I suppose, mm. um, as being thinkers who... Uh, don't privilege like society over nature or nature over society but mm. sort of attempting to gra- describe that sort of the synthesis of the two yeah were. and focusing on the relationship definitely between the two mm. as a way of not just focusing on one or the other i found sure very interesting yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah um in one, one of these essays that we read um bellamy foster's sort of setting out to sort of set the record straight on um how sociology as a discipline reflects on um the contribution of its sort of like founding or classical thinkers yeah, yeah, to yeah. the idea of uh, ecological social sociology, mm. particularly the idea that uh, Marx and Weber and Durkheim were all <laughs> uh, reacting against a certain kind of like uh, social Darwinism and sort of so a sort of theory of uh, human beings' relationships in nature that was very sort of like biologically centered. Mm. Um, by sort of swinging in the opposite direction and really emphasizing like um, society and I guess the power of um, human beings mm. to control nature. Mm. Um, and he's trying to rebut that by suggesting that in, in all of those thinkers, but obviously in this case, he's talking primarily about Marx, in all of those thinkers, there is um, a huge amount of like, well, varying degrees anyway, of a sort of ecological awareness. Nuance, one might new, say. Quite, oh. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, which has since been lost to um, sociology. Hmm. Um, largely because sociology's in- interaction with um, ecological thinking was sort of driven by a very strong dichotomy between everything that came before it, which was seen as being very um, 
what's the word like human centered mm. um anthropocentric anthropocentric <laughs> in its thinking um and result resorting to the opposite variant of that very strongly mm. which is like a very sort of ecologically centered kind of like recenter yeah ecology obviously yeah. like uh, that is not, as we're saying, that's not what Marx is trying to do. That's not what Bellamy Foster in presenting Marx is trying to do. Mm. They're very much more in line with what Bookchin was trying to do, which was sort of yeah. like describe the sort of the relationship between the two. Um, mm. And obviously, Marx falls back on this piece of terminology, metabolism. Yeah, it was funny because he had the German word in there, and I translated it, and it translated as olfactory odor, and I was like, oh, I can't be oh. right. <laughs> I was like, oh, there must be something going wrong here. The one thing, I, so I thought it was so interesting in this how um, Foster is like really trying to extrapolate a solid theory of ecology and as you say, like social ecology from Marx and from a lot of these thinkers. But it's funny because like specifically with Marx, he has to extrapolate pretty much from like this one main topic that Marx talks about, which is soil fertility. Uh -huh. And I thought that was so interesting just how much he was able to like create an entire like what uh, school of thought around just Marx's more or less study on soil fertility. Because it seemed like when Marx would talk about, you know, the, uh, the, the tension between like um, town and country, city and country, whatever, and about how so much of like what is being created in the country is being siphoned off and is going directly to um, cities, because that makes sense. You know, if you produce food in the country, it needs to go to where a lot of people uh, live. That makes sense. Um, but it was interesting because that exact same line of thought, right, gets applied to soil fertility because it's like it was such a great metaphor for like labor power, what labor creates leaving the country by saying, no, the energy that is literally created through nature and through our harnessing of nature through farming uh, gets shipped away to be like consumed in cities or something like that. And then basically just like, you know, squandered and never basically returns to the earth. Um, I thought that was such an interesting like, I mean, it started out as kind of a metaphor, but then it was like, oh, Foster's point is that this is the starting point for an entire ecological theory, like a social ecology. I yeah, thought that was yeah. so neat. It was like, oh, wow, that's, that's basically like, two of the exact same things and it all just comes down to this theory of capitalism. That blew my mind. I thought that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's very much like the the social ecology of Bookchin mm. and the not maintaining the, I suppose, what, I can't remember what phraseology he would have used, but like the systemic balance, I suppose, yeah, yeah, between yeah. nature and society. Mm. Um, and Marx, Marx um, builds upon his description of the division of labor to mm. sort of describe that um, tension between town and country. Basically, fewer and fewer people are actually working in the in agriculture, I suppose, in mm. the countryside. But due to sort of increases in agriculture productivity, fewer and fewer people working in agriculture can actually support really large populations in cities. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. As you're describing, like, um, so much of that process is the removal of... Um, nutrients or mm. i mean from one place and transporting it to another kind of thing yeah either in the form of labor power or in the form of as you say like literal nutrients like uh -huh. nitrogen because that's not going back into the oh soil. i see what you were saying about it being uh, yeah uniform instead of like yeah a, like a a potential metaphor for a bigger picture kind yeah of. exactly but then instead of being a metaphor it's like oh that's just his point yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. that's just his starting place yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah, I thought it was it was also very funny. There's that section where the, he was going through um, Engels and Marx's letters where they were talking about how 
they were like, isn't it absurd that we have to ship in bat guano from like South America when like Saxony just flushes all of its manure down the toilet into the sea? I was like, yeah, there's oh, one yes. really funny quote when they're really sort of like laying into London kind of thing. Yeah. Like, City of four and a half million people can't work out anything better to do with all of these sort of precious resources and to pollute the Thames. Kind of yeah, thing. Exactly. I mean, that's one of the ways in which all of these different um where, where you can extrapolate from the degradation of the soil, which is, I, I suppose, Marx's starting point when he when he's talking about human beings' relationship to the environment mm. and how it extends into other areas. And one of those areas, like the pollution of the cities, that results yeah. from yeah, all true. of these people yeah. living there without any like um, yeah, w- without developing a sort of like all organic sort of synthetic way of. Mm mediating these imbalances yeah which i mean like the implication there kind of seemed to be like we should all just be like pooping on our fields which like obviously that isn't it but it's like we should all be like realizing that like the nutrient cycle doesn't Mm -hmm. like that's what this rift is that's like what metabolic rift is is that when you grow to apply it to monoculture again as we did from last week if you grow only corn all the time in one like 10 mile by 10 mile farm right and um, you basically take everything that the plant uh, takes from the soil to produce, like the corn and the food and everything else. Um, you don't let any of that return to the soil, either through a rot or through um, uh, compost or anything like that. Uh, and that just gets shipped somewhere else because no agriculture is really regionalized in the United States or anywhere like that out here anymore. Um, that just creates this rift where now you have to do something about the loss of nutrients in your soil, right? So the modern way of fig- of kind of like, you know, figuring that out and getting around that is to just pump it full of nitrogen and pump it full of fertilizers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that like sounds good and it seems like it's okay, but then you're just removing the soil's uh, natural uh capabilities of re- reproducing itself basically sure. yeah, right yeah, yeah. so then you're just creating like sand with nitrogen in it and it's going to get to a certain point where you just can't grow anything in it which is kind of where we're heading at the moment yeah 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 it makes me think of in Bookchin when he was talking about complex systems being resilient yeah and simple ones being very prone to or very fragile and mm. prone to disruption kind of thing mm. and i wonder whether there is a synthesis there between that idea and what you were saying about like you reduced all the natural complexity of Absolutely. the soil and you're just trying to sort of pump it full of its mm. raw materials mm-hmm. kind of thing um and whether that leads to a much more fragile system yeah absolutely um, absolutely i mean yeah i mean i guess the other i, I guess we have to somehow reckon with like I guess the ultimate the ultimate solution is that well, not the ultimate solution necessarily, but like the the sort of deep green conclusion that one could take would be that everybody should live exactly where their food is produced. Oh, sure. They should eat all things that are locally produced and then put all the same minerals back into the ground that have come out of it, kind of thing. Yeah. The same plants that have grown there should rot in the same place. Um, mm. That would produce the most um, organic and natural environment for um, the production of. The sort of like the longevity of mm. uh, food. Production. Well, I am a primitivist after last and week, that, as yeah. I told you, so it sounds pretty good to me. Developing suspicious primitivist tendencies. <laughs> um, but even if that's not necessarily what we're saying, kind of thing, mm. like. Um, yeah, maybe we should expand on that a bit because I mean, like, I think that does speak to like a complete necessity to re-regionalize agriculture. But yeah, it's like, yeah. well, what does that mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, Foster, at some point in one of these, gives the example of like um, less developed in sense of like a capitalist uh way 
of thinking, you know, of like a uh, social mode, I suppose. A lot of these places would just like, because everything was so regional, it's like, yeah, you did just grow things around, you know, where you lived and you just ate that and blah, 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 blah. You weren't like getting beef from Argentina that was then packaged in China and then sent to you in New York to eat, right? Sure. So, I mean, I guess like, what would a sensible re-regionalizing of agriculture look like? And I mean, it certainly wouldn't just be like, you only eat what's in your valley, right? And it only like, naturally grows there. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, I suppose you would have to find, you know, not a middle ground, but like something where it makes sense, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are, there are um, absurdities that come from the capitalist mode of production. Mm. Ones, as you describe, right? Mm. Like somehow becomes more productive to <laughs> grow all this cattle in Argentina and ship it all around the world yeah. than it is to like... Um, have a cow. Regionally, have your own cow <laughs> kind of thing. Um, yeah. Or just like, you know, cows from like within a hundred miles or something like that. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what, yeah, what, I guess what I'm saying is like those kind of efficiencies that are the efficiencies that are the, 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 the primary interest of capitalists because they're all, all they're interested in doing is uh, mm. expanding their sort of production so that they can accumulate more value. Like, yeah in a post-capitalist and socialist world, like those imperatives would not exist. So um, there would be a sort of natural, um, or at least like you you could intentionally then start to plan some kind of relationship between human beings and the, the way they produce food, which yeah. follows more of these principles kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was something that was touched on, right? Like very briefly, it was planning. Because sure, yeah, yeah. I think like Foster, you know, recognizes in Marx, where Marx, I mean, just comes out explicitly and says, yeah, if you're supposed to have free association of producers, like you would still need, like, you know, smart agriculture production would require some kind of planning. Like it was interesting because at one point he did just say, smart agricultural production, sustainable agricultural production does not follow from uh, the transition to socialism in any way. Yeah. That would be like a whole, not other thing, but like, it's not just going to happen, mm -hmm. you know? Well, one point in this, he sort of lays out a whole series of criticisms that are leveled at Marx. Um, and I won't rattle them all off now, but one mm -hmm. of them is, as you say, like, as soon as you make this transition, sort of like socialism will naturally solve these problems or like yeah. environmental concerns will, will by definition not be concerns for mm. socialist kind of thing. Yeah. Or um, if you expand um, productive capacity in the way that Marx is usually attributed to have emphasized as being the, the main way to socialism, right? Like mm. you, you accelerate uh capitalism sort of mm. bountiful degree of productivity um and repurpose it kind of thing yeah um, then you can have huge abundance and you wouldn't even need to have these environmental concerns be considerations mm. um foster is obviously trying to rebut that criticism of marx mm. um as you say like mm. marx very explicitly suggests that ecological planning would be a facet of the planning that would be necessary to have mm. the as you say the the sort of socialist society that was the was premised and benefit based upon a free association of yeah. laborers kind of thing yeah it's interesting too and that kind of like gets into the next bit of like what was i didn't write it down was it like jevon's paradox jevon's paradox yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. where it was like the, i mean I, I suppose i should back up a little bit because foster says that technology as it relates to like production doesn't necessarily make like it makes raw material usage and, like, production more efficient, but it doesn't really, like, lower the demands. 
that you uh, place on the environment or on like, I forget exactly the phrase you use, like the bio like mass or whatever that you're using or that you're drawing from, right? Um, so I mean, the, the paradox was, was basically just like, what was it? It was something along the lines of like, if you find an easier way to extract coal from the earth, you're actually going to wind up consuming more coal and burning more coal mm -hmm. just because now you have more coal and there's an easier way to do it, right? Or is I misunderstanding that? I th no, I think you're correct. Mm -hmm. There are portions of one of these essays where he talks about um, energy. Mm. Um, and I think the suggestion is that the modern capitalist mode of production is incredibly wasteful in its use of energy um, in terms of like agricultural production in rural settings transporting all of those um, foodstuffs to cities mm. and then having to transport guano from Peru or wherever <laughs> so that you can put it back on the soil in as a, as a sort of natural fertilizer for yeah. the soil kind of thing um, as being incredibly like energy intensive. Mm. Um, so what you might imagine the solution to that being is that you use technological advance mm. to make your systems more energy efficient. Mm -hmm. But I think the crux of Jevons paradox is that um, under capitalism anyway, like the the resulting efficiencies only lead to um, an effort to exploit even more kind of yeah. thing. There's greater exploitation of nature because mm that's the primary mechanism of capitalism kind of thing like yeah which like monoculture like that's that's kind of exactly what that is it's like you found a more efficient way to like use your fertilizers and to grow stuff but it's like in the long run it's like oh wow you're just uh uh really only being very short-sighted in terms of your uh profit maximization because in the long run ooh, i don't know about that when you give it all to your dumb fail son all of your <laughs> stuff i don't know he's probably gonna run your company into the ground because there's no more soil there's just sand um, yeah, I mean, I guess that talks a lot about, like, the technological determinism that you can find in a lot of, like, maybe more utopian ecology and, well, I, maybe I should say environmentalism. Um, just this idea that we've seen kind of pop up over and over again in d different ratings about, like, well, technology will kind of, like, just it'll sort itself out, you know what sure. I mean? Like, we just get better ways of producing things and a faster, more efficient plane to take my meat packaged in China packaged grown in goddamn Argentina, you know, it's like that's not really like getting to the crux of the problem. Nothing against Argentina, I'm pretty sure we have some Argentinian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. More so goddamn uh, Argentinian uh cattle industry, maybe I should say. <laughs> um But yeah, I don't know. Again, it just speaks against like technological determinism, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's I mean that's the I don't yeah, I mean it's it certainly speaks against any suggestion that um well, I guess there's a reading of this Jevons paradox, which mm. you could apply to the idea that capitalist technology could fix uh, capitalism's ecological crisis. Sure. Like if, if the ecological crisis we're suffering and the environmental crises we're suffering are all the result of um, the exploitative nature of the capitalist mode of production, not only to exploit workers, but to exploit the environment as well. Yeah. Um, Jevons paradox ought to imply that there is no capitalist technological solution to said ecological crises. Mm. Um, and the only solution is a radical transformation of the mode of production. Exactly. Um, yeah. Now, that might not be the only way to read Jevons paradox. That might mm. not even be the reading that Bellamy Foster is suggesting. But Let's read it like that. Let's read it as such because... <laughs> Um, yeah. Why not? Uh, yeah, well, I'm not going to come up with a new, more nuanced <laughs> one. 
What? Nuance on this podcast? <laughs> nuance, get out Madness. of here. No way. <laughs> nuance, no I can't even spell way. it. <laughs> um, who was it at the end? Was it, he was talking about, oh, I always get these two confused for some reason. It was either Bukharin or Kautsky. Um, Bukowski, as some have called them. He was, he was talking about Bukharin at the length, I think. Yes. Yeah, where um, this just, again, made me, because of my VSM brain, think about um, the viable systems model. Because at one point, I believe, did you say it was Bukharin? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think Kautsky is referenced. Basically, yeah. what he's saying is that, like, the way that the Soviet Union ravaged its natural mm. environment mm. <laughs> uh, and paid absolutely no heed and <laughs> in some cases seemingly just actively tried to just destroy <laughs> and uh, desecrate everything. He gave a little what, bit uh, of like it was, clout to Lenin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, like... it, 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 basically he's saying that that's mostly um, a result of the sort of Stalinist transformation mm. of the Soviet Union sure. and these early, early... Both social democratic and Bolshevik thinkers, Kautsky, Lenin, and Bakarin, mm. all like mm. took very seriously the idea of yeah. ecological crisis. Um, I mean, he's suggesting that there is a there is a straight through basic run from Marx onwards. Like sure. Marx did seed into the workers' movement a concern for the environment, which mm. um, was only destroyed later yeah. um, in the Soviet Union and to some extent in post Second World War. Yeah, West absolutely. Well. He, yeah, he threw a little shade at the uh, Frankfurt School, kind uh -huh. of for, he was like, well, they developed a bit of an ecology, but everything was framed by them, basically. Uh -huh. But what yeah. you going to say about Bukharin? Yeah, no, I was just going to say that that frames it well, because he, I just thought that it was interesting how he basically just said what Marx was saying in a different way, as saying that none of our advances in terms of technology, none of our production, none of any of that, none of anything that we do... Uh, occurs outside of an environment, right? And he doesn't mean like environment, like, whoa, dude, like the environment, bro. Like he's talking about just very literally, like, you know, we produce things. And it's, again, it's like going back to uh, that gendered quote that Marx had that we talked about last week about um, uh, labor being the father and nature being the mother. It was more about just putting both of those things on equal footing because it's like, yes, labor is the uh, way in which we kind of like harness nature to create more use values, blah, 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 more value. Um, but you do need to take heed of like <laughs> nature and the environment with which you're doing that because it, w it doesn't even make sense in a capitalist way of thinking about things to treat nature the way that we're treating right now. Because like, if you actually wanted to maximize your profit for a really long time, you'd be thinking about what you're putting in the soil. But, you know, again, that's the short-sightedness of the market cycle and tying like soil health to the market which is like a dog could tell you that's the stupidest thing on the planet um but yeah anyway that just reminded me of a viable systems model because mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. uh you know operations meta system environment mm. everything reminds me of that and i see it i see it like in, in sand I'm like the viable systems model there it is <laughs> If you haven't already, go check out our go check out our video. <laughs> good plug, good plug. Our uh, Bible systems model explainer. I think it went over a hundred views today. It did, Which, really like, cool. I'm stoked about it. That's awesome. Yeah, we got a professor to narrate it, which is really cool. I don't um, know who that guy was. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's, it's good that you bring up labor. I think because it's mm. quite an important part of this in, in multiple respects. Marx describes labor as the sort of like how human beings mediate the process by which they sort of like metabolize mm. nature i suppose mm. and energy and in a very, like quality. literal sense um how they how, the, the relationship between society and nature is mediated by human labor mm. um 
I guess, I mean, we haven't really talked about metabolism very much or, <laughs> or, or metabolic rift. <laughs> what the hell is metabolic rift? Can I just say before we get into that, that there was a line that was something like um, blah, 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 the original sources of wealth, the worker and the soil. And I was just like, <laughs> I was just like, hell yeah, that was so cool. Anyway, what is metabolic rift? I, don't, I haven't figured it out. <laughs> I guess I, like Marx is borrowing metabolism. There's a suggestion in this that, well, it's, it's said in this that Marx and Engels are the first people to apply the idea of metabolism to society and to say mm. that like there is a societal process by which society metabolizes the f- fruits of nature. Mm, sure. Um, and the vegetables of nature. <laughs> but yeah, to create, I will say just really quickly, like to create not just like food, but to create like chairs and buildings and anything else that we create really because yeah, that's yeah, yeah, all yeah. obviously where yeah, it comes yeah, yeah. from yeah 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 i mean we've come across this in capitalism in mm. capitalism <laughs> in, in, in in our, our brief foray into capitalism no no <laughs> our brief foray into capital <laughs> i thought you were gonna say it again and i was like damn <laughs> um, yeah we've come across this idea in our brief mm. foray into capitalism. yeah we have Brief, very brief. Um, that uh, well, I wrote I, I wrote down something about like uh, nature equaling use values kind of thing, mm. or mm. use values being uh, something which stem from nature kind of thing. Sure. Like the material, use, the u- u- the usefulness of certain materials and certain objects have their basis in the um, material qualities mm. of. Uh, the, um, the inputs yeah yeah <laughs> which absolutely. which uh, and as you say they come from nature mm. um i mean one of the one has said other criticisms of marx which uh bellamy foster attempts to um rebut mm. um is this idea that because marx was so fixated on labor mm. he entirely ignored the portion of the the value of things which comes from nature sure um, which to some extent leads to um, the potential, I suppose, of an idea in which like nature is just there to be the raw inputs for mm. um, for labor, mm. and that sort of like very crude um, idea, which like Marx and Engels in several places in this are quoted as like <laughs> severely criticizing the idea that nature is simply there yeah. to be exploited by human beings, kind of mm. thing. But still, that's a sort of idea that's sometimes associated to Marx. Mm. Um, and I guess some of the crux of that is the is is made reference to in the fact that Marx holds to the labor theory of value and suggests yeah. that all labor, all value comes from a misunderstanding would be to say that yeah. value comes from labor. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Of course, what we know is that like what Marx is describing in Capital is the inner workings of capitalism. Mm value and the types of labor which produce it the abstract labor that produces value in a marxist sense Mm. um have basically nothing to do with the useful qualities of either the the products that are created or hence also the useful qualities of um, nature kind of thing Mm. it's it's capitalism in its very workings which privileges a certain type of labor and ignores and minimizes the inputs of nature kind of thing yeah it's only with a properly marxist understanding that you can understand the sort of like the relationship between social production for 
big V value, which is the basis of capitalism mm. and that capitalist society's relationship to the natural mm. world. Mm -hmm. um, Marx very implicitly says that mm. um, nature, nature is an equal contributor to the value of things. Yeah, absolutely. In a sense of use value, in the yeah. sense of human usefulness. Yeah. I just feel like I need to like, <laughs> let's be very clear. Let's try not to say anything too wrong about Marx's labor theory. What Marx was saying was. <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I, at a certain point, that's just really simple because it's like you wouldn't have things if you didn't have a pool of raw resources from which to draw to make mm -hmm, those things. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. I suppose that's just one more full group. I, mean, so, so, I mean, so now we're in a position to explain methodology rift if we haven't already. You know what, Dan? We, Go off. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is basically, it's quite a simple idea, really. Like, um, and it, in some ways, I feel like it just builds off the use value, exchange value distinction. Mm. Um, basically, metabol all, that, all that's implied by metabolic rift is there is this gap between what's being taken from nature and what's being put back in. Exactly. Um, and we're overextending or exploiting nature, or at least capitalism exploits nature in mm. ways which it can't possibly renew. Mm. Um and Marx was building this theory based, as you say, around the crises in in agriculture that happened in the mm. um, in the nineteenth century, which was like a legitimate crisis and mm. caused like severe worry for capitalists and capitalism, kind of thing. Mm. Um, I mean, there was an interesting aside in this we could bring it might be worth mentioning where um, Bellamy Foster draws this distinction between Marx and um, two other Ooh. theorists of political economy, Bukowski, Ricardo, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Thomas Malthus. Yeah, Ma uh, Malthus. I just, I love it. I just love it. <laughs> um, yeah, everybody's favorite villain. Yeah. I mean, almost like if I was writing back when he was writing, I'd probably be like, guys, don't too many people in a city. It's all we're all going to die. No, not enough land. <laughs> I mean, it probably made sense back uh -huh, then. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But like um, uh, one of Marx's criticisms of those two thinkers is that those two thinkers both thought that the um, the value of land, which was represented by the rent that mm. was paid to the landlords came from the... Uh, natural fertility of that soil kind of thing mm -hmm. and it it was for marx to come along and say no um human action can improve the facility sure. of soil kind of thing mm. i mean we, we i mean we saw this this was the basic nature of the the agriculture the, but what's described in this is the first agricultural revolution yeah is that, is that my phrase agricultural yeah agricultural well, revolution yeah um <laughs> which which is the subject matter of our reading of Ellen Meeks's wood and the transition to capitalism. Indeed. Um, enclosures. Crop rotation. Enclosure, crop rotation. Manure. Soil. <laughs> don't, Dan, don't say those words. No, God damn it. Um, and, and the idea of improvement. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it took Marx to say, no, no, mm. land doesn't have like a natural... Uh, ability to give it doesn't have a natural uh, fertility it can be improved but at the same mm. time uh, the mechanisms of capitalism can lead to greater and greater exploitation of mm. um of the land so yeah as, we, as we've already said like as the populations of the cities grew there was more and more and as the desire for um tenant farmers and their uh, 
landlord overlords <laughs> to um, extract more and more from the land mm. led to this massive deficiency in in uh, uh, the fertility of the soil and this threat of mm. uh, reducing yields. And you, I mean, we've already referenced some of the ways in which they attempted to uh, find new fertilizers to put into the soil. You, you met, well, I mean, we've mentioned guano from Peru or somewhere wherever it was. That some some more um, more oh. macabre macabre. Yeah. Oh my God. There's like one bit in both of these. The bones. Sort of like he brings up the bones from the battlefields of the Napoleonic Wars. Literally from like Austerlitz and Waterloo. It's like is that what battlefields were like? It's like you, you could just go and still find bones I guess, and yeah. just grinding up the bones for fertilizer. I read that. I had to put it down. I was like, whoa. It's even, a metaphor for something. I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, there's even a reference in one of these to. Um, Using ancient Egyptian mummified cats. I'm all for that, yeah. honestly. Don't desecrate the dead, but cat, de de Egyptian cats, go for it. Oh, okay. You just have to be wary of the spell that's going to be put upon you for Ooh. disrupting that cat's life, <laughs> afterlife. I don't know, I feel like I'm more attached to the cats. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, I mean, really, the obvious solution is to just ship, so all, the, ship all the shit of the cities back to the, the countryside. But... Exactly. Well, and Which also, I believe, I believe did happen at certain points in history, but um, yeah, was never a capitalist. Solution. Well, I mean, and also if you don't want to ship human poop, I mean, the yeah. way that they talk about like capitalists trying to completely control the life cycle of, say, a cow or a chicken by just like you know keeping it in a box and then like cleaning up its poop and either throwing it out or giving it to some factory that's going to make manure and ship it off somewhere else. That's completely just doing the exact same thing. That's metabolic rift because it's just. The energy that's there is being shipped somewhere else or just binned, just completely destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have to be human poop, guys. It can just be cow poop. Yeah, any poop. Any, any poop will do. Horse, horse poop. Horse poop would be fantastic. I could actually use it horse poop. I mean, there frankly. was that impending threat at the beginning of the, the, the 20th century that, like, <laughs> the, the streets of major metropolises, mm. metropolises, New mm. York and London, yeah, like, the Brooklyn. streets are just going to become full of. The Organic Horse City. <laughs> Walt Whitman wrote a poem, I think, called The Organic City, or he wrote something about it, and he was trying to make this, like, Brooklyn is the perfect city because, like, the rich... <laughs> this is so vile. He's like, the rich, like, throw their scraps into the streets, and the wandering feral pigs eat the scraps, and then the poor people eat the pigs, so it's all one happy cycle. <laughs> and it's like, you psychopath? How's that a good cycle? <laughs> the perfect social metabolism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, just the the poor will just eat the feral pigs that survive on the scraps of the rich. Literally, the poor people aren't even surviving on the They're scraps of the rich. It's yeah. like, oh my god. <laughs> Brooklyn still hasn't changed. So <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, there's another bit of the metabolic rift uh, idea, too, that I think needs mentioning, and that it's not just this idea of shipping energy somewhere else. It's that the our ecosystem's natural ability to do away with harmful um, things, think carbon, think, um, just think carbon for now, mm -hmm. um, is being done away with. Because, you know, carbon sinks, like uh, uh, the Amazon rainforest, or just any forest, really, that's being leveled for uh, profit maximization re reasons, whether that's for firewood or whether that's just for farming land or for, you know, grazing land or something like that. That just completely does away with um, the planet's ability to get rid of all of this carbon, which we're producing, obviously, at an exponentially higher rate than we've ever done. Uh, and when I say we, I just basically mean, like, everything alive on the planet. But it's our fault, obviously. But, like... Not only is there a rift in that we're creating an excess 
on one end of carbon, but there's also um, the like negative is being taken away too because the planet's ability to uh, deal with that carbon yeah. is being destroyed, and that's just, that's another version of metabolic rift. Sure, yeah. There's, there's one point where he talks about carbon rift, isn't it? Yeah, which is basically the same thing. Mm. I mean, yeah, that's the 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 basis of the crisis that we face now is one around feedback loops. Mm. Like, I mean, to some extent, it's a disruption of uh, like forests that would be natural carbon sinks kind of thing sure. but also like um and also like the the melting of the ice caps is mm. reducing the earth's albedo so that we're reflecting mm. less light into space kind of thing but also like melting permafrost and mm. i don't know all sorts of other places where like once a temperature once a temperature tipping point is reached it's going to result in this even greater mm. release of carbon from these natural carbon sinks in the world kind of thing mm. um so yeah, there is this rift opening up between how much carbon we're taking and pumping out, mm. um, then compared to how much the sort of natural environment is able to tolerate yeah. and compensate for. Um, yeah. So yeah, like the the I, 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 the implication of that, I suppose, is that um, although Mar all of Marx's writing was around the, met the the metabolic rift, which is evident in eighteenth century agriculture, like there are other applications for mm. this idea. I mean, it's a quite simple one, really, isn't it? It we're is. Just yeah. Like, <laughs> we're, we're we're disrupting the organic balance of our ecosystem. Yeah. Well, apologies. Oops. Capitalism is disrupting the organic balance of our ecosystems um, <laughs> in such a way that it just doesn't have the capacity to repair. Yeah. Exactly. And that's one thing that frustrated me. I mean, I guess the longer essay that we read, Marxist Theory of Metabolic Rift, Classical Foundations for Environmental Sociology, wasn't just an attempt to explain metabolic rift. It did that. But I think that the point of the essay was more like uh, it was being written for a sociological journal. It was supposed to be about sociology and rebutting this like feud that quite frankly I, I wanted nothing to do with about like between like modern sociologists Neither and classical a sociologist, sociologists. <laughs> yeah um and yeah i don't know again this is like a lot of what i have problems with whenever we kind of like read something that's very academic because it's like okay it's one thing to write something in a complicated way about something simple it's another thing entirely when those ideas are like a necessity to be translated to a popular audience if we're supposed to have oh, any kind yeah, of yeah. like future. Yeah. And I mean, like, I get that, you know, uh, where Marxism is still alive, we're still kind of like on university campuses. And so maybe it's just that like, we're looking in the wrong places, but it's like, I don't know, I get very frustrated with like, just come out and say that it's like, you know, a simple way of defining metabolic rift, which is, I guess, what the second essay was. I mean, that one, which was in the Marx handbook, was like five pages or something like that. It was just a very like, uh, here's what it is. It's bad. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just because like Marxism is supposed to be like easily understandable or maybe not easily understandable, but easily translated if we're supposed to be getting these ideas to any kind of popular audience, you know. I don't know. Academics, what are you going to do? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. Folks? Yeah, I mean, I worry that we're engaged in quite an academic exercise. <laughs> Maybe oh. we ought to just try and read less academic yeah. things. Or, um, <laughs> yeah, what's the use of this idea other than sort of like... Yeah. I mean, it gives you some other meat to chew on kind of thing. Sure. Or like, um, it's, an, it's, a nice way to it's a nice way to frame the problem and also it, um, it introduces us to some, some of the problems in the ecosystem that mm. will need to be resolved kind mm. of thing. 
Well, I think in terms of like, you know, if you want to explain the problems of capitalism to someone who isn't like, has any kind of background in Marxism or anything like that, I think this would be a pretty good place to start because not only does it get rid of the like, all environmentalists are just dumb hippies, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Um, it gets rid of, it's like just an easy way of being like, here's the issue in the way that we've produced things. There are other ways to produce the things that we need to survive. And this is a very simple way to see why, where that goes wrong and how it could potentially be apocalyptic. Listen to me. I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the apocalypse. Folks. It might already be too late. <laughs> it could be. Yeah. I mean, it could be. It could very easily be. Um, po I, has there ever been any writing about a post-apocalyptic uh, rebirth from the ashes, Phoenix-like rise of socialism? Oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't think I'd want to read that. No. That sounds too sad. It's funny because like in this, I do like it whenever uh, a Marxist is like, here's what you thought Marx said, you idiot. Here's what he actually said. There's a lot of that in this. And I did like the kind of one that was like just the general idea of like, uh, whenever they say you thought Marx was a technological determinist or you thought Marx was like an ecological or not ecological and uh, economic determinist, anything like that. Um, I like it when we come across something like this, that's like, no, actually you can extrapolate like an extremely well thought out, like materialist conception of ecology from like what yeah. Mark said. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> I mean, it does seem like there are infinitely many like varied exegetical mm. readings you can have of Marx. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, he was just things. talking about soil. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. But for, it's yeah, a method. From, from, from such a like, um, uh, a polymath that Marx was kind of thing. Yeah. Like, the things that you would try and lend his hand to or try and understand kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. When they talk about their, their excitement about all, I mean, like, I think Marx was friends with this guy who's meant to be the Leap. founder of soil science. Like Leap, Leapig or Leap yeah. something? Just, just from Liebig, who yeah. also seems to have been quite a sort of social, mm. uh, who was minded towards socialism as well. Yeah. Um, and was sort of like discovered quite a lot about, mm. um, or founded the nascent science of soil agriculture kind of thing. Mm. Um, and Mark seems to have corresponded with him and been quite friendly with him. And that seems to have been yeah. the basis of so much of their understanding kind of thing. Didn't he reference um, him in an, a letter to Engels and he was like, my friend, Liebig. I was yeah. like, <laughs> and there was one point in this where, I don't know, was, it, was he corresponding with um, Darwin or somebody? I think, I think maybe he was friends he with the person Darwin. who, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he, I think they may have corresponded. I forget the guy. I'm sorry. Like, um, <laughs> there was a guy. The immortal slight, the other guy that came up with evolution <laughs> and never gets remembered. Um, Darwin. No. <laughs> no, there was another guy. Yeah. Oh, Charles. <laughs> anyway, anyway. The Beagle. Mark seems, Marx may well have um, corresponded with a turtle at some point. I <laughs> um, I, yeah, what was it that we read recently? Was it Bookchin where he said the two greatest um, materialists ever, Darwin and Marx? <laughs> that might have been something else. I don't know. But when I, I was doing some, I was huh? endorse it. Mm -hmm. Oh god, mm -hmm. I was. I think I was doing a deep dive before we read our book, Jen, trying to figure out something to read. And um, I yeah, I think I came across something. It might have been him where he said that, and I was like, yeah, right on. It is. I love god, the bit in this when he was talking about Marx and Engels talking about Darwin. That was cool. Mm -hmm. That was just real. How they were like, this makes total sense. Mm -hmm. The applications of this towards like sociology, perhaps not so much, but this is awesome. <laughs> it was really yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one point I was just going to highlight because it, it marries up with something that we suggested this last week, mm. whereby a certain type of materialism could be well married with this idea that there is a feed, there is a feedback or an influence from the environment onto mm. human beings. Kind oh, of sure, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a point in this where John Bellamy Foster basically just says that 
Marx basically proposes or founds a form of historical environmental materialism. Mm. And he implies that basically what this allows us to do is to account for the co-evolution of nature and society together, which again, sort of bringing us back to both Bookchin and also where we started kind of thing. Like It's not just about like a one-way direction between... Exactly, yeah, um, absolutely. ...human beings exploiting the environment mm. kind of thing or, mm. or privileging a natural environment over human beings. But mm. um, I mean, as we've talked about already, like... And as Bookchin talks about, and as in this is talked to talked about in terms of Marx's ideas about uh, what a future socialist society and how it will be organised around um, consensual democratic planning, mm. like you have to work out how to marry the the desires, but also the long term longevity of uh, the human species mm. to the requirements of nature, kind of thing. Then you can't mm. sideline one for the interests of the other. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it makes you kind of th- again think differently about that the nature mother um, labor father quote because it sure. is like, yeah. I mean, you get what he was saying there, but it's also like you know they are kind of like not one and the same, obviously, but like the relationship between them is kind of what needs to be focused on as opposed to both of them individually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah I mean, maybe that's just like a crudely patriarchal <laughs> yeah metaphor, oh, but not one which is meant to imply like. A dominance, a, a dominance mm. of the masculine over the feminine, but more certainly like, implies a passivity. More like a na- perhaps, yeah, I suppose mm. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. It's true. It's true, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I was, well, I was going to say maybe, maybe more what it implies is kind of like a two uh, related roles. That oh, are sure. Sort of meant to be different but complementary. I mean, obviously, I don't want to endorse that. <laughs> yeah. No, I think um, I think but, you're right because I think that what it wasn't original was originally Marx didn't say it was William sure, Petty, yeah, yeah, yeah. and so I think that when Marx adapted it, that is what he was trying to get across. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, one, yeah, I kind of want to go back really quickly if we can to the agricultural revolutions bit sure. because I had a thought on that. Um, so just really quickly for the royal listener, um, was it Foster identifies the these three agricultural revolutions, right? Or I, th- I mean, I think that's, I think that's like uh, an accepted, accepted yeah, sure. like schema. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, the, so uh, he comes across like three different revolutions in agricultural production. The first, as Dan, you were saying earlier, enclosures and mainly market relations as implied with or as correlated with um, agricultural production and that kind of like, you know, various technological improvements. Um, and then in the 1800s, the soil chemistry and improvements in fertilizer, like what you were saying. And then the third agricultural revolution was in the 20th century with more mechanized farming and things like that. Um, introduction of feedlots, genetic engineering with food. I wonder if we should include what I was thinking. Just my only thought on that was I wonder if we should include refrigeration in that because that's not, that's more of like a technological advance not made just for um, agriculture production, obviously, mm. but I think that that is one that has had a huge impact on. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't relate to production, it, but it also relates back to this idea that you you can use greater energy inputs yeah. to develop yeah. a potentially even more irrational distribution of goods, yeah. kind of thing. Like it yeah. just allows you to transport things over even more absurd distances because it's, in terms of like market efficiencies, it's the one that allows you to mm. produce for the lowest, yeah, for the highest gain at the lowest cost, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at what environmental cost, kind of thing, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. In, um, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, another part of that is like, as you say, the feedlots, but also like factory farming would be an mm. important part of that. And that oh, absolutely, we, yeah, we, we know what kind of metabolic rifts we're opening, mm-hmm. both in terms of 
antibiotic resistance, but sure. also like the the possibility of new novel virus transmission from animals uh, to human beings. I forgot about uh. virus. <laughs> forgot about that. I was just thinking about the apocalypse that would come via soil, soil. degradation. <laughs> the soil apocalypse. The soil apocalypse. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's good, I think, as like a final thought for me. A, it's good to have a phrase, the phrase metabolic rift. It's good to have a way to encapsulate all of these different energy losses in capitalism mm. and it's good to just have a way of pointing to something whether it's destruction of carbon sinks whether it's soil degradation whatever and just going metabolic rift that's what that is um and so yeah i think that's kind of like what i took away from this mm -hmm. as being the uh good thing that's my conclusion metabolic rift good phrase and it rolls off the tongue as well and you yeah. sound kind of smart when you say it mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 before i knew what it was when you kept rattling off i was like what <laughs> Really hey, oh, well, all right, four eyes. Remember wear glasses. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I suppose a closing thought for me. There was, there was, there was one point where um, Bellamy Foster, I suppose, speaking through Marx, um, uh, likens metabolic rift to um, human beings' estrangement from nature, mm. which I uh, mm. thought was mm. quite nice. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Become less strange with nature. Yeah. Be more strange with nature. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I'm becoming a hippie, remember? So <laughs> That's I, true. I don't know. I don't know. I much incense have you burned recently? I've communing with my trees. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. I'm fine with that. Um, and sort of inspecting bark and just <laughs> having quiet moments. Um, you doing all right, buddy? <laughs> that's you talking to the tree. Uh, yeah, uh -huh. But I'm also yeah. asking you. <laughs> Talk to me as if you were talking to a tree. <laughs> I would love to live in a part of the world where you can just punch a faucet into a tree. Does this how it works? And get syrup? Get Is that how it works? I don't know. I've been led to believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somewhere along the line, we're going to have to work out how to tap trees for syrup. <laughs> or the useful things. Can you just do that to any tree, but then you just get sap? And if you can... I mean, I suppose only certain trees produce... Uh, yeah, useful saps, quantities of saps. Is it pine that produces a lot of sap? Yeah, I, I want to say yes. We'll have to ask someone. Ask the tree. Yeah. <laughs> you got a pine tree? Go ask your tree. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If you ask it, have you got nice sap? You'd be like, no, mate. Jog <laughs> yeah, <on." laughs> yeah. Whoa, buddy. I don't know about that. Here's another question for you. What is sap? What does sap do? I don't know. I mean, is it? I know in photosynthesis, one side of the equation has sugar. I think it's a, my ninth grade <laughs> biology says that it creates some sort of glucose, yeah, sucrose, food, something it, I mean, like it must that. Be part of the transportation yeah. of nutrients, yeah, either water up or soil up, soil down, water or up, like soil sugar, down. sugar down, or I don't know. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I have to read something about trees. We should read something specifically just about trees. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, favorite down. tree? I'm down. I'm down. Podcast preferred tree? Hmm. I was saying to you recently that my favorite noise is wind going through pine trees, so I might have to say pines. Sure. Pines yeah, are yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'm only recently becoming acquainted with varieties of trees, I suppose. Okay. Um, now I'm I a little I'm, bit more suspicious I'm, of the word I'm acquainted <laughs> in that sentence. I'm partial to a you. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Cool, gnarly-looking trees grow yeah, all over the place. Sure. Really weird-looking berries. Mm. Have some kind of, like, symbiotic relationship with some kind of fungus, which is cool. <laughs> Sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got stuff going on. They live quite a long time as well, yew nice. trees. And my mum grew up in a house where... That took the name... That took its name from a yew tree, so... Was it the yew house? 
Yeah, U-Tree Farm. Oh, cool. Right. U-Tree Farmhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, there were some U-Trees in the garden. I like this idea in England of naming houses. I think that's cool. Yeah. It'd be very weird if you did it, like, in California. Yeah, you yeah, named yeah, a house. Yeah. The other thing that I come across, like, that I sort of glean from my, from what I've seen of American pop culture, is like, <laughs> houses seem to be numbered up into the, like, thousands. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> whereas, I, I mean, at least in the town that we live, like, mm. a, a road changes its name at, like, every roundabout or every intersection yeah. or every junction. Every, so like, it's like, slight bend. Yeah. <laughs> Oops, okay, we're suddenly on a new yeah. road again, kind of thing. You guys, I don't know, must have run out of numbers for yeah, your road. Indeed. indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know how it is in New York, but like in parts of LA, that like street numbers get up into the triple digits, and it's just like, <laughs> right, ran out of names, I suppose. <laughs> I'm honestly, I'm more of a fan of that than naming it after like some person. Okay. Like, obviously, there are good people in uh, history of Los Angeles that have had streets named after them, and that's cool. Uh-huh. But like, do we need to name things after people? Come on, they're dead. Like, I get it. But the ideas, that's what I'm saying. The ideas, man. <laughs> Justice Drive. <laughs> Metabolic Rift Street. <laughs> I'm just going to go around changing the street signs <laughs> around where I live. And just... We should do that. Yeah. We should go and rename all the streets <laughs> after concepts. That's a good idea. Yeah. Oh, have you noticed that there's... I meant, I've been meaning to ask you about this for like a year. Nearby us, there's like a sticker next to an Extinction Rebellion sticker, which makes me think that this means something, but there's just a large bumper sticker that says eating animals and it's on a stop sign or something yeah. like that. What is that? I don't... It's meant to read stop eating animals. Oh, okay. I didn't notice that it got ripped off. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like eating animals. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. Phrasing yeah. it like that yeah, makes... It's been there a long time. Mm, eating animals. There's yeah. as many like graffiti stickers as you used to. Mm. We should mm. get some podcast stickers printed. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Little red, the red square. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> yes. Just stick them on lampposts, I suppose. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our community service when we get caught, we'll just be like, get <laughs> all these damn stickers. Yeah. Back in the day, uh, can you do this out here? You can get um, in America from the post office, you can just get like 100 free stickers, blank stickers from the post office. Sent to you for, for free. For writing on your envelopes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they're huge. I don't believe and so. So no. people just like do little designs on them and stick them up everywhere. Um, so I always thought that was cool. That's cool. Um, yeah. I like that. Mm. We could just buy some stickers. Could just buy some stickers. Doodle on them. Doodle. Yeah. yeah. Um, any good Star Trek? I watched a couple uh, Deep Space Nine recently because I'm like, I haven't seen all that. I need to watch it. Nice. It's Which good. ones did you watch? Um, just from the first season, because I keep forgetting where I stopped. So I just go back and just start again. Uh-huh. And I watched one where it was like really early on. It was like, um, <sighs> Bajorans were around. And I'll be mm. honest, not the, not I'm at not least this half of the podcast. The <laughs> Me neither. No, I have no, no time for the And they're supposed to be like the cool revolutionary like aliens. And it's just like, guys, no, come no, on. No, no, no. Here's what I think. Cardassians, <laughs> Klingons, Romulans. Are natural allies. That's just a fact of life. Oh, I see. They should in, all be in, allies. In universe allies. In okay. universe allies. They should be. Ferengi, uh, Bajorans, Betazoids, and the Federation. They're natural allies. Uh-huh. Actually, maybe Ferengi can kind of be in the middle. Sure. They're cool. Sure, but sure, like, sure. two guesses which side I'm picking. It's the Klingon <laughs> side. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How does the Federation keep winning all these wars against the Klingons? That's a good point. 
Well, I guess now, yeah, well, now and not now, but like, I guess they are allies. I mean, here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. I'll tell you, I'll tell you my meta theory about Deep Space Nine after this, because I don't think, right. I don't think we've talked about it. All right. I was just going to say, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say this. Mm -hmm. If you were to close your eyes and just hear these people talk, close my eyes. would you be able to tell the difference between a Cardassian, a Klingon, and a Romulan? Because I think that they're so closely, like, they that they should, they're natural allies. That's all I'm saying. And Cardassians are the coolest. Then Klingons, then Romulans. Sorry. Actually, maybe Romulans second. They're all cool. Cardassians are dressed the coolest. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> Would I be able to tell the difference? Um, I'm going to say yes. All right. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of, like, teeth prosthetics in the Klingons. You can probably That's hear that. That's true. Um, and like the, the 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 Romulans are like reverse Vulcans, right? So yeah, you can yeah. probably probably hear that. Mm. And um, none of them are as like smarmy as the Cardassians. True, Cardassians are very smarm. smarmy. Yeah, I think yeah. that I kind of got respect for that. Yeah, yeah. The, the Cardassians are smarmy. The Romulans are sinister, mm. and the Klingons are just like warriors. I'm re redoing my redoing my uh, my order. Tailist. Klingons are the coolest. Okay. <laughs> They're the coolest. Klingons after Frankie. Sure. Yeah, I was still not. I still not worked this one out. <laughs> the ultimate species. Mm -hmm. My theory about Deep Space Nine is it's like an ultimate. I mean, it's probably somebody. I mean, it's not a unique <laughs> idea. I'm sure. Um, is it's basically premised on. A sort of Fukuyamaist end of history. Hmm, so I think that, like, obviously the 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 Cardassians with their sort of like ludicrous show trial justice system uh -huh. are meant to be like some kind of permanent Soviet Union at the height of the the, the purges right. kind of thing. Yeah. And I think the I think the Cardass I think the Bajorans are meant to be like a a post Soviet state that's just sort of like sure. gain its independence. Yeah. Um, Allowing it sort of culture and religion to be re-inherited, mm. and um, like Chechnya, and and like and uh, through the uh, spoilers through the course <laughs> of like um, the seven series of Deep Space Nine, and by the end, like it kind of feels like everybody's kind of settled on the same sort of like political and economic mm. system, mm. like. Mm. The, the Klingons go for... Well, I mean, the, this process of, like, taming the Klingons has gone on through all of the series, and, I mean, it's fine. Um, and the, But the same is, like, they they seem to be sort of, like, becoming more and more... Uh, adopting more and more traits from the Federation, and I think the same, like, by winning the war against the, the Cardassians... Card, sort of like political dissidents in Cardassia, mm. sort of like form a democratic government kind of thing. Anyway, mm. yeah, I think it's all. Interesting. I think it's all. I think it's all very end of history informed. Mm. But there you go. I don't like that. I don't like that. That's I why like I always that. say that I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I will say though, go back and watch also, it. Also, also, they they love the cops too much. They don't love yeah, cops. It's very kind of not only the cops, but they love law. Oh. That's the whole like, thing. The whole thing is like... It's like anarchy cannot prevail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having said that... I mean, obviously, it's a different setting, and I, 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 can, I can appreciate the counter-argument. It just, just makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, so, yeah. I think well. they definitely tried to go full the other direction after Next Generation, where they're like, what if it wasn't just this perfect spaceship where you'd love to live? What if it was yeah, just a yeah, shithole? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there was disquiet amongst the writers of Next Generation, and once they mm. got a free hand to like do something more interesting, they did something more interesting. Mm. 
Um, I, I mean, ultimate question though is who would you rather serve under? And like, dude, Cisco is the dude. Uh-huh. He is so cool. Uh-huh. Picard is like, yeah, it would be great serving under Picard. Knows what he's doing. He probably wouldn't die except for all those times where they technically did. It, it, like, he's a little like. I don't know. It's a little like it's a little not untrustworthy, but like there's something going on there. Cisco is just like he's just gonna get shit done. Like whatever situation, drop him in any situation, and he's just the dude. Picard's kind of like that, but he's also a little bit like I don't know. Yeah, maybe maybe this is like an authoritarian history coming out of me. <laughs> but like I don't know. Cisco's the dude. That's fine. It's like yeah, organic yeah. authority figures. I've got nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um. Yeah, well, is that a serious question? Do I need to answer? Yeah, well, yeah, Cisco, why not? Yeah, Have you watched yeah. the baseball episode yet? No. Yeah, it's in the final season. Ooh. Um, sounds good. Yeah. Maybe we should watch it for the show. That sounds awesome. I'd I love know, to watch baseball episode. <laughs> watch the Star Trek and... Baseball. Talk know, about some baseball. Talk about some baseball. You can educate me on... on uh, yes. On like, that is called a pitch. 24th century baseball. <laughs> um, I did come across a book that Although I really Although baseball has died out. It's very sad. You know this baseball is dying. Baseball, baseball sort of dies out in the in the twenty first century. It does, and that's why, like Cisco's being Damn. into baseball, it's like really, it's a oh. really niche thing. Oh. It's like a real baseball nerd. This is why you like it. He's like a this. real baseball nerd. Ah. Yeah. Um, I came across a book that I came so close to suggesting we read, okay. but yeah, uh, it's just about baseball, so we're not going to do that. Uh-huh. Uh, Boys of Summer, something like that, but it's just all about Jackie Robinson and all that. And I was like, "Damn, I want to read that book, but probably wouldn't have the time." Uh-huh. It's like maybe we can just—it's <laughs> not going to happen. Would be cool. Um, anyway, folks, baseball is starting soon, so come back here for all your baseball tips, uh-huh. your all of your uh, your FIPS and your XWOBAs and mm-hmm. your spin rates and your curve balls and your mm-hmm. fan graphs. Um, and I'll tell and you why what, the what? Dodgers will win the World Series again. <laughs> What names are top contenders for the Cleveland? Uh, yes, Cleveland baseball team. Yes, I was just reading something yesterday about how they used to be called the Cleveland Naps, which oh. is so good because apparently yeah. there was like a guy What's named a Napoleon, like a, like a, having to sleep, yeah, having to sleep. Okay. No, it was just there was a player named Napoleon, and they really liked him. Oh, I see. So they called when he left, they called him the Naps. The naps. But it's like I like just the Naps, like yeah. bring it back, but have it mean nap. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> Cleveland Naps, Cleveland snooze, the snoozers. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Metabolic rift. I don't know. Close the book on that. That was fun. <laughs> oh, ah, the book has been shut. Um, no more closing thoughts for me. Any closing thoughts for you, Dan? Um, no, I don't think so. All right, lovely. Um, this has been the uh, Captain Cisco Report Hour and Baseball Extravaganza. Um, my name continues to be and will probably be until I die, Jack. Uh, yeah, my name is still down. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time. (laughs) Bye-bye, folks. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time.